Welcome to Myanmar in a Potshell, the podcast that puts current developments in Myanmar into context. My name is Rodan Ebbinghausen, and the title of this episode is Myanmar's Many Revolutions and the Spring Revolution. I would like to discuss the topic with Kin So Win, who is a well-known political analyst from Myanmar. He was director of Tampadipa Institute in Yangon, working on policy advocacy on communal issues, land and nationalism. He was also a prisoner of conscience in Myanmar for seditious writings and human rights work. He has been associated with parliamentarians of various Myanmar parties, believing that pluralism has to be promoted. And during the hybrid democracy's golden window decade, he kept a hopeful and independent position, siding with neither the military nor the NLD establishment. He has been critical of both, so he makes a perfect fit for our podcast where we try to avoid bubble thinking and talk to different people. And our second guest, which is a premiere for us, is like also author or um, uh, author of this podcast is Hans-Bernd Zöllner. He is a theologist and an independent Myanmar researcher who visited Burma for the first time in 1984. From the 1990s on, he started to research on the country's history, politics, and the relations between Burma, Myanmar, and the world, and vice versa. He's particularly interested in the history of political ideas in Theravada Buddhist countries. So thank you very much for joining us today. And let's start with the discussion. After the coup in 2021, the demonstrations and the violent suppression of the protests, or after the uh, uh, violent suppression of the protest, the opponents of the military regime declared the Spring Revolution. Since then, the country has been in a kind of civil war. And I would like to ask you first, Kin So Win, where do we stand with regard to this revolution? Has there been one? Is Myanmar in the middle of it? Or is it already over? So where do we stand in regard to the Spring Revolution? What's your estimation? Uh, thank you, Rodion. Uh, uh, it's good that you've separated um, the events, you know, into, into parts. Um, it's been uh, two and a half years since the coup. Well, let me say that it started off as peaceful protests in the major urban centers, Yangon and Mandalay and other places. But um, very soon, the hunters, security troops, you know, uh, military and police, use lethal violence, you know, and um, people started to be shot and killed, and it really grew and grew, you know. Um, in some places, there were massacres, lots of bloodshed. You know? So I think it's a collective decision for the people to resist this, take up whatever arms they have, and to fight back. That's the key point. It is not political or ideological, or is it orchestrated by a political party or a leader? So it has been two years. Well, I say the fighting, the conflict started roughly in May um, 2021, and now it's been over two years. I would say we've come, I was writing earlier today, and we, we would have come to a turning point militarily, you know, in the sense that it's a war of attrition, it's very bad for the people, but the 
military is losing ground, it's losing troops, it's losing territory, you know, it's losing equipment. But um, it, it doesn't mean that the resistance of the revolution is winning. It, it'll take some time. But we can, having observed all these events at close quarters, you can sense this journey. Well, that's the military part. But uh, when we call this um, the spring revolution, it's much more than that. No, it affects society, it affects um, ethnic relations, it affects religion. So that is what people like me are aiming for. It's not just a military victory, and it's not just a political change of governments. Far from that, we want a complete revolution in many senses of the word, because Myanmar needs one such thing. It's been uh, seven decades of failure, and we really have to get to the root of things. That's what I believe. So uh, if you ask me about phases, I would say the first military phase you know, is coming to an end, and another phase is beginning militarily. You know? But politically, we will also have to prepare for that. I'll elaborate as I go on. So if I, if I may ask, so do, you would say that we are still in the middle of the revolution? Yes, yes, we are in the middle of it. And, and Hans-Bernd, what is your take on this? Do you, do you see a revolution happening? And, and where do we stand uh, in this revolutionary process, if we may call it like that? Yeah, I think as an outsider, I should uh, be very careful uh, in making judgments about uh, the events in the country that I know for a very long time, but that I, to be honest, have not totally understood until now. Uh, and in my uh, Western mind, I would first ask what a kind of revolution is this compared to the many revolutions that happened before. So uh, my approach to Myanmar uh, political uh, things is a historical one. Uh, and from that, I learned that uh, this concept of revolution, even the name used by it, uh, if I'm uh, correct in the pronunciation, it's Tolanye, mm, uh, that that was coined by Takin So, uh, the uh, first and outstanding communist uh, ideologist and leader in the 1930s. And this uh, means, according to my understanding and that of other Western scholars, uh, that means it, it's a total change mm, of uh, a political system. My question is... Uh, or my understanding is that in the present situation, the system is represented by the Tamador, uh, the military, to be more precise, by the military leadership uh, around uh, Minang Lang, the uh, senior uh, general uh, who is uh, doing working as a politician um, as well um, in these days. Uh, but this uh, system, I don't see any alternative mm, uh, to this uh, system because the NUG is just yet yeah, uh, mm, an institution working uh, in the media, uh, of course, uh, with... Uh, 
a kind um, of a strong paper tiger. Mm. And this uh, yeah, little bit difficult phrase may show my dilemma to make sense of what is going on now in terms of revolution. Uh, so my question uh, is always, and I hope uh, after this talk I'm a little bit uh, uh, more enlightened about that, is what is mm, the new system that might emerge uh, from this revolution and how is there any idea of a step-by-step -step approach? Mm. I would like to, of course, uh, would like to know if you agree with with this outside view from Hans Bernd. But I would also like to know, like, let's talk a little bit about this term. What does revolution mean in Myanmar context? And what is your take on this? What is a revolution? It's a very um, important and interesting uh, question and issue. You know, well, um, you could say that in recent Myanmar history, uh, the word the term revolution has come up again and again. So in Burma, Burmese, we call it Dolanye. So there have been many Dolanyes, um, revolution against, um, most notably uh, in World War II, you know, um, against the fascists, you know, and um, we don't call the um, granting of independence a revolution. But later on in 1962, when army um, General Ne Wen staged a coup. He called it a revolution, and he called his council a revolutionary council. But I think, um, to be very frank, over the years the term has become rather debased. You know, um, Ne Wen's re re revolution was not actually a revolution. He was uh, talking about um, in terms of a, a left-wing uh, doctrine. But actually, it turned out to be just another right-wing military dictatorship. See? But now we are talking about the essence, not the not the big a slogan revolution, but the essence, what the people really feel. Well, it's, it began um, sometime in February and March, so it was called the uh, Spring Revolution. It, it, it's the, that's the season in, in Myanmar. And so I think especially for those who are fighting and those who are committed, you know, uh, we are talking about a transformation of society, not, not just the system of governments, which is, well, quite frankly, a fascist dictatorship. So we want to bring that down. So it's not going to be easy. But at the same time, we are talking about a generational change, a generational transformation. And a new look at how we view democracy and how we view um, ethnic and federal relations. You know, all that has been swept under the carpet for so long, and now we are testing it off. You know? And so um, it's a messy time, but uh, I think the really committed people in Myanmar who are at the forefront, you know, militarily, politically, or at the barricades, know this. It's like a, like a, um, two weeks ago, when I was um, emailing, you, emailing you from Australia and Aung San was given a partial pardon, well, many people thought that uh, this was a reprieve for her, but it's not going to solve anything. So, so as I've said in my interviews, it's time you know, for the passing of generations and the passing of the torch 
So we have to build a new with a new goal and new ideas and new concepts, you know, and of course new leaders. And that's what we mean taking it as a whole by this revolution. So in short, I would say this revolution is much bigger than we've had in the past. Sometimes in the past, like Nguyen's revolution was just a shell, you know, just an imitation. This is the, the, the real essence of what we need and we set out to do. Yeah, and I, I would be interested because I just don't know, like the spring revolution, which term is usually used for it? Spring is Nguyen. In Burma, and we are sort of uh, subtropical, so we have only three seasons. The hot season, no, the rainy season, and the cool season. So this happened at the beginning of the hot season. So roughly it was uh, translated into spring, which is Nui U. Nui U Dolan. In Burma, in Burmese, it makes more sense. It happened um, during the time of the advent of the hot season. It's called Nui U, and Donaye is a revolution. So Todd that is in, Burmese in, name. Uh. And no disagreement. Everybody knows that this is a re revolution. And that's why we are people are paying with their lives, you know, and the liberty and much else for this. It's the biggest thing that, that has ever, ever happened, I would say, in a century. Okay, so I would like to um, dig a little bit deeper in this into this understanding of revolution. So If you look into a dictionary of political science or anything, like revolutionist is usually understood as an abrupt and sustainable structural change of society. So I would say in regard to Myanmar, the abrupt changes are obvious. Yeah, when the when the coup happened, there was this abrupt change. But in a way, it was like more from the military side who made a kind of revolution in their sense. Yeah. Um, And the second point is that it has to be sustainable. So I would like to know, um, and like maybe Hans Bernd, you can also say something about it. Um, how do you, how sustainable do you see, or, or is what we are seeing, or is it much too early to talk about it because we are in the middle of it? Well, talking about revolutions, so it's, it's, it's very important. I've been reading quite a bit on them too. The China's Cultural Revolution, that's what they call the Cultural Revolution, lasted for one decade. No? <laughs> well, you could ask, how did they sustain it? And the effects were, well, in some ways catastrophic you know? and sometimes uh, counterproductive. Okay, that's enough. Now, in uh, our case, uh, you, your question is, how can we sustain it? You know? Number one, we're not getting any help from outside, that's for sure. You know? So it's... Um, Intrinsic. It comes from inside society, from the people's and the public's um, real feelings about um, what they are confronted with and what they have to do. Okay, number one. The other material sustainability is, well, I sometimes call it uh, Nyama's first publicly funded resistance struggle. Mm -hmm. you know? People are paying out of their own pockets, you know. It's a very hard time, but they're, they're doing it. And uh, thirdly, and most importantly, sustainability, sustainable means that do you have the spirit and the will to go on? And I would say, yes, resoundingly, yes. Because, like I say, because of the young people, but not only the young people, 
ethnic people, women, a great deal, you know. And I think uh, everyone who is really committed and knows that this struggle is about ending, you know, this military brutal, you know, fascist, whatever name you call it, is um, unspeakable sometimes, you know. They have to be brought down. But uh, I, I, like I never die of repeating, it's not going to be easy. But let me tell you one thing, you know, it doesn't have to end with all the um, generals facing a tribunal, you know, and the army being dis, uh, disbanded. You see, the institution is now being fractured or ruptured, you know, and um, mm -hmm. uh, it's in danger of um, collapse. So it was the institution, the strongest and the most powerful institution in Myanmar, which has been power for at least half a century. And now that is being shattered. I think that is the key point, you know. Well, the military may still hold on to some of its uh, pockets of territory and resources, you know, but in the public image, like I said, in the institution at the, at the core of it, at the, at the foundations of it, it is being shattered. I think that is what we have achieved up already, I would say. And what is your take on this whole question about like sustainability and the length of this revolution, Hans Bern? Yeah, my problem is, uh, I tried to express it before, is that I have difficulties to understand uh, the op optimism of uh, Kim Jong-un and many other voices I hear here in Germany and uh, recorded from uh, from Myanmar. That is uh, Western skepticism maybe, uh, but my arguments uh, would be that I don't see uh, any kind of... Uh, uh, unity in these many, many, many um, forces opposing the Tamador. In my view, to simplify it, it is just that the only point of unity is that almost each and everybody in Myanmar uh, being a, a, a farmer um, in the dry area, especially around where the resistance of the PDF is the strongest in Sagaing and Magwe uh, regions, uh, to the intellectuals in Yangon, uh, like you, uh, that they are against uh, the Tamadoru. That is absolutely unquestionable. But uh, behind this uh, unity, um, there I don't see any uh, common um, uh, will, uh, and this uh, reminds me of the famous sentence of uh, Furnival um, in the old uh, days, um, that, uh, yeah, what in the multicultural, multi-ethnic uh, um, scene of uh, former Burma, uh, there is no real common will, except against at that time uh, in the colonial period uh, against the British to throw off the colonial rule. And I have the feeling history is repeating. Uh, it is uh, 
common will to uh, throw off the foreign yoke now uh, the homemade foreign yoke of the only institution that has worked in Myanmar for uh, not since uh, 70 years but since independence because the main uh, force according to my knowledge bringing independence was the uh, uh, Burmese army uh, led by, by Aung San. So my simple thesis is, or my question is, uh, I see this understanding of revolution, uh, total system change and a total new uh, society as an utopian um, attempt. Uh, and sorry to say, not the first one. And I don't, uh, I don't see... Um, I can't, can't share this hope from the outside. But since I'm not a Myanmar citizen, I must not do so. Uh, maybe I can pick up this point because I, I believe in 1988 we could also speak about the revolution. There was definitely a revolutionary spirit. But in the end, I would say, I, I think all of you agree that um, that revolution failed in a way. It did not succeed. So my question would be maybe to Kim So Win, uh, what do you think is why is why did the revolution not work in 1988 and what is different today? Well, that's a good question too. Well, in 1988, uh, I was already back in uh, Myanmar, um, but most people did not see it as um, a real or a genuine revolution. No? Um, unlike now, unlike now. At the time, um, the objective was to um, um, bring down the one-party state and restore democracy, you know? I would say in 1988, the objectives were more limited, limited, no? But why it didn't succeed? Well, you could uh, speak for hours about that, you know? So I think, well, of course, um, the youth, young people and the students were again at the forefront in 1988. But I think um, most of the leadership were also from an earlier generation and they were, well, just fixed on uh, restoring democracy. So, well, at that time, we would have been quite happy, you know? Well, um, we don't want a one-party state and we don't want... Um, a dictatorship and authoritarianism. We wanted a multi-party system. When it was first mentioned, it was like music to my ears, you know, that we would once again have a multi-party democracy. But actually, that was not enough, you know. Um, the goals were limited. So I don't think then and now it really um, fits the label of a revolution. See? And of course... Uh, Later on, commitments um, uh, faded away, you know, and people joined the bandwagon, like you said, you know, uh, mm -hmm. like many politicians now, they are siding with the junta, you know, and even the leader of the NLD, come to think of it, you know, well, she went along, she went along the flow of the uh, military and even went so far as to go to The Hague and to defend the Rohingya genocide, you see? So uh, I'm sorry to say this, but uh, if you put all the cards on the table, 1988 was a failure. Or we'll say just a partial success. We 
multi-party democracy was um, was sought. Elections were resumed, but it was very very limited. And most importantly, the key institution, the military, became bigger, larger, and stronger than ever. That's what we are facing now. All right. Yeah. Okay. May I uh, step in, Rolion? Mm. Mm. Please. Yeah. Do. Uh, what you are talking about is resembles me mm, on another uh, uh, part of the history of '88. Uh, uh, that was a year when, just out of a sudden, Aung San Suu Kyi uh, sprang up to the um, political scene with the big event at uh, the Western Gate of Schwedagon uh, Pagoda for half a million people said, uh, listened to her and were absolutely fascinated. Uh, and that was uh, the spark that really ignited this uh, revolution of uh, what were called the democratic uh, um, revolution. Uh, her Mm, then she was awarded a prize, the Sakharov Prize by the European Parliament, and she gave a speech she could not deliver in person because she was already under house arrest by them. And there she uh, expressed this famous uh, phrase of the revolution of the spirit, a spiritual revolution in which... Uh, uh, in which uh, she uh, said that the quintessential revolution is that of the spirit, born of the intellectual conviction of the need for change in those mental attitudes and values which share the course of a nation's development. And I have the feeling what you are talking about, uh, Kindwin, is just the same that this spirit is tried to be revived as well. But this spirit is countered by what is done by the PDF's uh, uh, struggle with with weapons. I I can't bring these two things um, together. That's my my big problem uh, for the time being. Can, can you help us? Can you can you bring together the revolution of the spirit with the spring revolution, or is it something very different? It's the military side of the spring revolution. Well, that's, uh, my, that's my point. <laughs> you can't choose the uh, time like this. You know? um, I think you, we we can't be choosy at a time like this. You know? I think um, this needs to be, um, I think, um, disseminated you know, a bit more. So? In the society, but lots of people still think in terms of um, bringing the elected party back and restoring democracy and holding another elections. No, it's it's going to be much more than that. You know? And I'm glad to be able to speak like this, you know, with a quite a reputable um, broadcasting station, so the people abroad, including the Myanmar people and the diaspora, will know about it. You know. Um, please don't be in doubt about it, you know. Well, it has to be much more than a change of government. It's simple, you know. By spirit, I mean that we have to, that sometimes, um, I think China tried to do that with the Cultural Revolution too, but in the wrong way. Uh, what I'm aiming at, what I'm saying is that we have to broaden and deepen the revolution and the goals of the revolution, you know, and make it 
um, more e expansive, you know, um, widen it out because uh, we don't, again, we don't want to repeat the mistakes that were made in 1988 because we ourselves self-limited our objectives and our goals, you know, and even that we didn't achieve. So now, well, we are, the people of Myanmar are paying a much higher price than ever before. And we can't let those people down. Okay, I sit here in Yangon, in the safety of Yangon, and speak to you. I'm very glad to be able to do so. But there are millions of people who can't do that, you know, who can't even get a, a, enough to eat and no shelter because all the houses have been burned down. So for this kind of cataclysm and disaster, we just can't make a deal and shake hands and let's forget about it. No, it's not going to be that, that way. If only for the people who have lost their lives and who have suffered, we owe it to them. Okay, that's one thing. But again, I repeat, you know, the goals you know, and the amplitude, or let's say the, uh, the reach of the revolution has to be much more than what ordinary people would expect. Or what I would say, people outside the country might expect so i would like to to ask a bit more like like a like maybe a meta question you can say myanmar is a buddhist society and and buddhism is usually associated with a circular idea of change and passing so this circular idea is very strong um but a revolution or a revolutionary concept is like a you in a way break this Uh, the circle or the circular idea. So how do you think does this actually fit this idea of a revolution of a, as you said, like as a total breakup of society to this very deeply entrenched idea about Buddhism and Buddhist thought? Um, it's becoming more like a political philosophy. <laughs> If you don't mind my yeah, right. But uh, I thank you for it. I thank you very much. Myanmar has been independent for about 70 odd years, you know, and um, it's been one problem or one crisis or anything, one after another, and um, very little has been achieved. The country is still poor, you know, and um, we've, 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 we have slipped in the world rankings, even more so after the coup, you know. So we really have to look inwards and say, what has gone wrong in these 70 years? You see, and what is in front of us, what is confronting us, is a singular opportunity to make things right. All the mistakes of the past seven decades can be, you know, turned around if we work this revolution, you know, carefully. I'm not saying that I'm going to direct uh, the outcome of this revolution as the great messiah. But we all have to think deeply, and I thank you, Rudia, especially for that, for bringing all of us um, to these um, issues, you know, which are much beyond just political change. See? So you say spiritual. Well, uh, I go as far as saying that Theravada Buddhism, which is the religion of the majority of the people, is at least, I would say, Myanmar or Burmese uh, Theravada Buddhism is badly in need of reform. You see, all our troubles with the ethnic minorities, all our troubles with the Muslims and the Rohingyas. You know, what has 
Theravada Buddhism done for it. Theravada Buddhism, you know, is very sexist. You know, the status of Buddhist nuns is so low, you know, even lower than the young um, male novices. And nobody has spoken out on this. No, uh, sorry for saying this, but many women activists talk this and this, this and that and about gender and all that. They totally neglect the Buddhist nuns. There was a very articulate nun who is now, well, I say, like a lot of people, um, uh, lying low. I don't know where, where she is. But last year, in an online meeting in Bangkok, uh, last November, oh, she spoke very articulately. You know? So that's the kind of thing. Well, our ethnic relations, you know very well, well about too. Well, it's also died to this um, religious or spiritual side too. And there too, we have to make a transformation. At the very basic level, we have to start talking to each other. We can't um, deny or dismiss a person just because of his um, race or religion, no? Or place where he resides or his age. That is the kind of change that we want to see. No? So I think uh, you asked earlier about the, the phases of the revolution. Well, I would say militarily, we are more or less confident, you know, but the real phase begins now. The political and the social and the philosophical has to be um, inserted, you know, and I think the more we talk about it, the better. You know, well, well, people, you can criticize me and you can disagree with me and we can talk, but that is needed. That has not come into fore as yet. We are, we are all the time our energies and attention are just kind of crossed with the military conflict, you know, the fighting and to, to help people in need, people who have lost their homes, people who have don't have um, food and medical care. You see, and that has taken up so much of our time. But the time is now also uh, starting to make itself felt when we have to face these issues that we are discussing now squarely not singly, and not just the urban intellectuals, what they call the chattering classes. We have to look at it as a society. Yeah, Hans, Hans Bern, as you have been researching religion, you are a theologist, you, you know Theravada Buddhism well. So what do you think about this deeply yeah. entrenched belief in Myanmar and the concept of revolution? Uh, yes, my idea is that I'm, as an outsider, I have the strong feeling that if I listen to uh, Kinzo Win, uh, I have the feeling I uh, listen to somebody who is living on a different planet than I live, uh, to be uh, very, very frank. And the same happens when I listen to Aung San Suu Kyi's speeches uh, or uh, try to edit her speeches giving in 1950, 1995 and 1996, that it is a different political and spiritual culture. Uh, and I have, of course, no right to criticize it anyway. But talking about the cycles you mentioned already on, uh, it comes into my mind that when uh, Dr. Mao Maung, the last president of Socialist Burma, who tried to calm down uh, the revolution of 88, so to speak, uh, unsuccessfully, as we know, uh, uh, with his uh, calming down attempts, uh, 
uh, and he wrote uh, his memoirs uh, of these 88 things. And in the beginning, he says, oh, you see, uh, Burmese history since independence is going on in circles. Every five to ten or maybe 15 years, something new happens. It's going up and going down. And if I look at the history of uh, Burma, Myanmar, uh, from the Bagan area onward, we have the same, same pattern. Uh, one dynasty coming up, then going down, then a long time between, then a new and, and always a strong leader. And one of my, the reasons for my skeptic uh, with regard to the success of this revolution not being the first one, the first one was celebrated at January 4 of uh, 1948 when Burma became independent, uh, is that there is no leader at the time. Aung San Suu Kyi was one, Unu was one, Ne Win uh, was, of course, a, a bad leader. Then uh, the military guys came. Uh, my first uh, reaction after the coup was uh, how stupid, not how bad. Uh, but coming back to, uh, to, to Buddhism and the cycle of change, is, uh, I don't have... Uh, see any reason uh, to trust uh, you, uh, to trust uh, that this revolution might succeed, albeit I very much would appreciate if it does, because it's just too big an idea. Mm. Yeah, maybe I would like to to pick up this too, too big to an idea, and that is something which I also asked myself when I listened to Kim So Win. You said like, we do not have only a political change, but we need an economic change. We need a spiritual change. We need a religious change. We need like, uh, in a way, like a totally, total new Myanmar. And um, I, I was, I was wondering, isn't it maybe a bit too much, uh, which needs to be achieved at once? Well, uh, basically Myanmar is uh, a very conservative society. Huh? Okay. But also, people, something like thought leaders also have to come into place and um, float these issues like we are doing now. You know? They might not, not all be accepted, you know? but it has to be articulated, what I mean is, you know? for all the reasons that I've said before. So this is, like I, I repeat, it's a singular opportunity. Um, it would be too bad if we are going to miss it. You know? But again, you contrast this with, this with what happens in 1988. And if we commit the, um, another mistake of neglecting or ignoring what we need to do, it's going to repeat of the, consequence, of the, of the consequences of 1988. You see? So we have to articulate even more this, this chance that has come within our grasp. And we see this is what we must do to change things. I think the, the younger generation knows this better than the older ones. You know? The older people, like, you see that, you know, it's a very it's a society in multiple layers, like most societies, but in Myanmar, 
Well, there will be differences, but in the end, who is doing the moving and the shoving, you know, and the fighting and the bleeding? Well, they have, you know, I think the, um, I would say, um, the right. The voices would count. If you are just sitting on the table somewhere in Yangon and doing nothing, you know, well, your voice is not going to count. There are lot of, lots of commentators who are now silenced. I'm one of the very few ones speaking out. You know? And I think um, the ideas that I, I'm saying need to be amplified too. See? Well, I know it's a very, uh, let us say, uh, broad you know, and complex goal. But this is the choice that is before us. It's a very costly choice. But uh, if we don't take this chance, we have to think about our children and our grandchildren. You know? And uh, they could be saddled with an even more evil dictatorship if we don't act now. Um, I think it's like um, very interesting that both of you, in a way, wish that this revolution or this change uh, will succeed. Uh, but it's also interesting that with Hans Bernd, we have someone who is skeptical and with you, Kim Win, who is uh, an optimist in this regard. So I would like to ask both of you and maybe Hans Bernd, you can start uh, from your point of view, what needs to be done uh, or what are the, the cracking points or the most important points from your point of view, from the outside view to make this revolution work? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I I don't think that this revolution that from my Western standpoint I have to stress it again. Uh, I'm not in Myanmar and I have no right to interfere in Myanmar in the Myanmar spiritual way of thinking and so on. From my point of view, there is uh, no no real reason to believe that this revolution, uh, other than those before, including the so-called uh, uh, Southern Revolution. Mm, oh, will succeed uh, uh, because uh, there is no uh, united the united spirit that is called upon by Kim Win and ma many others Aung San Suu Kyi before that it does not uh, exist uh, I uh, still think that the spirit of sacrificing lives and spirits and everything in the society of Myanmar is very admirable, uh, but I'm afraid that it will continue uh, the bloodshed and that no uh, way of uh, reconciliation and so is possible. That is my little bit bleak uh, uh, outlook. Uh, but I have no solution mm, for this uh, difficult problem to uh, present. Okay, so so you say, if I may wrap it up, like that you say you are skeptical because there is a lack of unity and there is no leader which has been important for me. Uh, and the, the task uh, Ken Win described, which I very much like, is utopian. It, is, it seems to be, uh, there was an old uh, term coined by, I think, Taken uh, Kodan Mine in the old days and what used as a political slogan as well, according to my knowledge, that is that the Loka, uh, Loka Nebain. 
mm, the world in Nibbana uh, uh, to create it in, in Myanmar. And that is, in my way, um, utopia, mm, something which is a very good idea. But I would uh, always, as a Westerner, try to follow an evolutionary and not a revolutionary uh, path. And given this situation, I don't see any evolutionary way out of this deep crisis. Mm. So maybe, Kinso Win, I, um, I, I phrase this question in a bit provocative way um, to you. So do you believe... Uh, that the revolution can succeed without unity and without a leader? Excellent question. Well, uh, roughly, you can divide revolutions into two kinds. The one that have a leader to before, like China's revolution, right? The Communist Party, the leader Mao Zedong, you know? But he made a huge blunder with the Cultural Revolution, you know? But uh, other parts were... They have succeeded to some extent. So that is one extreme. But there are other revolutions of the other kind where there is no leader, there is no ideology, there is no even a doctrine. Like, like for instance, um, the revolution for women's rights, you know, and um, racial equality in South Africa and in the United States. Well, they are revolutions that are still going on, you know. So very broad revolutions, revolutions of the mind. I know um, there are even skeptics in this regard who say that um, the blacks in America will never achieve equality. You know? But uh, it has to go on. And for women, like I've said, not only in Buddhism, but the world over, look at what is happening in Iran when the women took off their hijabs you know, and are demonstrating. Who is their leader? One or two uh, outspoken women, but no single leader. So the more we think about it, the more it becomes a revolution in the mind. People know that this is what we have to do, and we have to do it whether we have a leader or whether we have resources or whether we have a doctrine, you see? So that is what I'm optimistic about. The, the idea has caught on. Would you agree that it's a kind of permanent revolution that you are uh, aiming off that? Here I could consent in a way, uh, because I always uh, have the feeling that uh, this revolution in Myanmar are very well try to connect it to what's going on in other countries like Iran or 10 years, 10 years ago it was the Arab Spring that was giving hope to Myanmar. And of course we need a uh, permanent revolution all over the world, including Myanmar and Germany and other countries as well. Maybe that could be a point where we could agree um, uh, to uh, broaden the um, horizon. Mm. Okay, yeah. No, we won't go as far as that, you know. Um, I don't know whether well, if many people would lend credence to uh, what Chairman Mao wanted to say and do, you know. But let me tell you, there are other examples, like Kurdistan, you know. They've been fighting for a nation-state of their own for a, a, one century since the Ottoman Empire fell, and they still haven't got a state. 
They divided into four countries, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and Syria. And that is a revolution that is still going on, in a way, you know, against um, people who would deny them their statehood. There are plenty of other examples, you know, well, you could talk about that in, um, in Buddhism, you know. One very good example is the, um, the Dalits or the Harijans in India, the untouchable caste who converted to Buddhism in the uh, early years of independence, in the early 50s, you see. Myanmar did almost nothing for them. The, the, the Buddhist countries did very little for them. But that revolution is succeeding. Well, they've cast off the caste system and uh, they've become Buddhists. Well, uh, well, they may not have attained the kind of equality that was promised to them under the Indian constitution, you know, but they know that by this act of conversion alone, they've asserted themselves, saying that, okay, we don't want your old system anymore. We don't recognize caste. No, we are not untouchables. We have become Buddhists. But that's the kind of thing that we want, the revolution in the mind. The mind, you can ask the millions of Dalits in India, how do you feel? Well, they feel free. No, they're not shackled by the caste system anymore. And that is the kind of thing that we want. Well, there was the leader, you can say that <coughs> there was Dr. Ambedkar, but it's still going on. So yeah. I think uh, it's, what we can say is it's a very cerebral thing. But the more you think about it, you know, the more we will be convinced that this is the right thing that has to happen. So, Kim so Win, uh, regarding my question of unity and leader, you, um, you uh, answered the question about the leader and that you believe that a leaderless revolution is not only possible, but maybe also necessary. But I would like to come back to my point of unity. So, um, how much unity do you think is needed in Myanmar to be successful? And, and what do you basically think about the state of unity in Myanmar at the moment? The concept of unity in Myanmar is a delusion. You can call it a chimera, you know. It never existed and never will. But think in terms of the new global concept of networks, you know. We are still locked in the concept of a hundred years ago, you know, a monolithic entity like a nation or a state or a party or an ideology or a religion that can be held together by leadership and by ideology. That is past. We don't know. It doesn't work anymore. What is possible and what will come in Myanmar is a loose network you know, of, let's say, um, territories, entities, Uh, sub-states, mini-states, proto-states, you know, uh, held together by a, a common intention, you know, and a common, I say, um, empathy, you know, of the re re revulsion for authoritarianism, you know, and for dictatorship. The, the demon of military dictatorship will live in people's minds for generations, and that has to be kept. And because of this thing, I'm more confident. If we talked about 
a single party led by a single charismatic leader, that is not going to work in Myanmar. You know? So I'm quite, quite comfortable, very comfortable with the present setup. Leaderless, no party, no ideology. In the world, we are talking about opposed politics. No? It's mm -hmm. not the old politics of parties and um, ideologies anymore. No? So as we you know, evolve into the 21st century, Myanmar could be one of the foremost examples of this kind of new thinking you know, happening. It's not that we are being locked into the older uh, systems and concepts of the 20th century. It's that a new phase is dawning, not only for Myanmar, but also for the world. I was in Frankfurt in, uh, in May, and they were talking about the Global Assembly. The main event, you know, will be in Frankfurt again in March 2024. Well, they were talking about these same concepts, you know. So I think... Uh, we have to be at the leading edge. We just can't be saying that, okay, we just listen to what the um, INGOs and foundations teach us and we just copy what they, what they did. No, far from it. In, 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 in some ways, Myanmar is going to set a new trend. Uh, hans Bernd, do you would like to add something uh, to this idea of a network? That's uh, actually what I try to express with my idea of a permanent revolution, uh, uh, which is not focused on one one center, but which is yeah close to uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's uh, revolution of the spirit, or as Kinder Wynn termed it, the revolution of the mindset. Mm. I, for that, I think it's a fantastic idea, uh, and it's a very Christian idea. Mm. Uh, as well, uh, I have a little bit difficult to believe how it can work. And it would be in terms of Western political context would mean that would be a, a kind of peaceful anarchy <laughs> in a way. Uh, and that I would say, according to my findings, would very fit to the uh, Burmese uh, mindset and to the multi multicultural uh, landscape uh, there. And I would be very happy if such a thing could succeed. Yeah. Uh, I have some difficulties to believe that you can, that people can... Uh, convince uh, the Tamador leaders uh, as long as you fight them with weapons uh, to believe in such a concept. <laughs> Because I think the concept of the military is uh, difficult, uh, different, uh, also based on Buddhism, but another branch. Uh, uh, but that's another topic. Mm, but I uh, very much support this idea of a networking state. Mm, and if that would work in Myanmar, I would be very happy, but I doubt that I will uh, witness this in my lifetime. Thank you very much for uh, both of you for joining and for discussing the idea about revolution. And I think we agree and we learned in this podcast that the revolution is going on. We are in a way in the middle of the revolution in Myanmar. Uh, we also agreed that it is an uphill struggle and that it is not yet decided uh, uh, how it will turn out in the end. But that like the best workable idea you can imagine and you think would be uh, fitting for a country like Myanmar is like this 
what we called at the end like a networking state uh, like without a center, without a strong a centralized idea, which is like the opposite of what the military obviously wants. So uh, thank you very much for um, sharing your insights, for sharing your thoughts. And thank you very much to our listeners for joining Myanmar in a pot shell. Please tune in again next time. <laughs>